All right, so my name is Joey Sedlock, and I always stall a little bit to allow parents to drop their kids off and come back and actually hear the beginning of the sermon, right? Uh, and so who I am is I am a member here at Sulphur Community Church, a kind of a part of what we do. And what we're going to do today is we're going to continue our study in First John, right? So what we do here at Sulphur Community may not be what your church does or, or if you're from another church or what you're used to, but we grab a book of the Bible and we just simply walk through it line by line, verse by verse. And what that allows us to do is not accidentally or on purpose skip anything that is difficult or maybe hard to understand or is controversial. And so that's, that's what we do. And so that's what we've done so far. And today we are going to be in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. That's chapter 2, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And that reads, Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, and whoever, but, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you today, Lord, and we are thankful thankful for the, the 10,000 things that you have already done today, Lord, and thankful for the three that we've taken notice of. Lord, we're thankful for Sulphur Community Church. Lord, we thank you for the worship that we're able to bring you, Lord, and Lord, we are thankful for your word. Lord, I pray today that you, as you move among us, Lord, that you open our hearts, that you open our eyes, that you open our ears, and Lord, that your word does not come back empty as we know it never does. We pray that lives are changed and that you are glorified among our neighbors and among our nations. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so um, when I was in seminary, I, I read this quote. This was like a first or second semester. It's like one of the first things I ever studied uh, while I was there, but I read this quote that I'm going to read for you today. It was a quote from probably about four or five hundred years ago describing Christians in a particular society. The thing about this quote is no one knows who wrote it. It's anonymous, so I don't have a cool name for you or to point you to it, but here is what it says. Let's, let's see what they, how they described Christians in that particular time and place. It, said, it says, Christians are not distinguished from other men by country, Late, uh, language or customs which they observe. It is while following the, custom, the customs and nations in clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary life that they display to us their wonderful and admittedly striking way of life. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is like their homeland to them, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. They marry like everyone else. They have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but they do not share a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but, do they, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing those laws with their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death 
and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They lack, they lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They, speak, uh, they are spoken ill of, and yet they are justified. They are reviled, and yet they bless. They are insulted, and yet they repay those insults with honor. They do good, yet they are punished as evildoers. Even when punished, they rejoice as if raised from the dead. They are assailed by the Jews and barbarians. They are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. To sum it up, what the soul is to the body or what Christians are to the world. That's a pretty glowing description, right? That's a, that's, that's, that's a description that we are not used to in 2019 in the United States of America of Christians, right? A description of Christians kind of in our culture, and, and it's a little bit skewed here because we're down here in the Bible Belt where it's culturally like, a, you know, uh, approved of to be a Christian, right? But in, in other parts of the country, country more so than here, Christians are described as what? Hypocrites? As, as judgmental? As arrogant? As exclusive? And yet, in, in this particular time and place, that wasn't the case. And, and, and I think the reason why, and, and what we're going to go into next kind of gives us a glimpse of perhaps uh, what, it, what it is like to be a Christian, what it is to, to actually be different than society, and what actually sets us apart is not so we can get these kind of descriptions, right? Not so that we can, we can have people think well of us, but because that is the life that, that flows out of a love for God, right? And a love for the world doesn't, doesn't lead there. And, and very recently in our society, I don't know if you've heard about it or not, we'll go into it, not the political, like, controversial parts, just the parts that we need for the day. Sometimes we see a glimpse of Christians who really, really are in love with God and not in love with the world. And when we see it as Christians ourselves, we rejoice and we point to it, right? We're like that. Yeah, have you ever, have you ever uh, found yourself saying, now that is a Christian. You ever heard yourself saying that? That's a weird thing to say as a Christian, right? But I don't know if y'all are familiar with this or not. There was a police officer in Dallas, Texas who's been convicted of murder. Her name is Amber Geiger. And there's a lot of political opinion that goes around about her case, but she, she was convicted of murder. That is a fact because she killed, uh, she invaded someone's home and she murdered them, right? All the other details, that, but that, those are facts. And at the end of her trial, she was sentenced. Um, she was found guilty of murder, and she was sentenced. And the interesting thing was, the man that she murdered had a brother who had the ability to speak with her before she was handcuffed and, and pulled out of the courtroom. And what he spoke to her was interesting. Because what he said was, I forgive you for what you did. I love you. And I pray that you would accept the love of Christ into your own life. And then he asked the judge, he said, can I give her a hug? And the judge said, yeah. So he goes and he gives her a hug. And he says, I wish you weren't going to jail at all. 
Now, the facts of the case are she broke into her brother's house and she murdered him. Does he not have every right in the world, even in, even in, in the light of justice, to say, justice be done, you deserve to go to jail, you deserve the death penalty, I hope you spend the rest of your life rotting away. And the world would sit back and they would applaud because that's a natural reaction. And, and even as some Christians, you can say, well, yes, we applaud justice when it happens. God is a just God after all. So if that sentence was handed down, we could sit back and we could applaud. But what's completely against all of that is to forgive. And we look at that and we say, that's a Christian. That is someone who loves God. People disagree about if her sentence was good enough or if it wasn't. People disagree about whether she did it or whether she didn't. But no one disagrees with the fact that we should forgive and show compassion. So we get a glimpse of what it's like to have Christians in the world who love God and not the world. And that's exactly the message that John has for us today in, in, in chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Is, is he says, uh, verse 15, the first half of it, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Right? That's his, that's his commandment. It flows out of everything that we've had so far, right? Starting, starting way back in the beginning, Blake preached to us, receive the word, right? That's the first thing. We know that John is writing... Uh, these things so that we could read them and know that we are saved, know that we have eternal life. And the first thing he says way back in chapter 1 when we started this, which we're only in chapter 2. I don't know why I'm saying way back in chapter 1, like the page before this. Um, he says, you can know you have eternal life if you receive the word. Next, he says, walk in the light. That is the fruit of receiving the word as you begin to walk in the light. Uh, David comes and preaches. He says, obey his commandment. You know that you've received eternal life when you receive the word. You walk in the light. You obey his commandments. And Trent last week came and he said, love your brother, right? Because as you are filled, that, that begins to spill out onto other people. So love your brother. And what John has for us today is do not love the world, but instead love the Father. Love God. And so he has in there, we have this command... Uh, in verse 15, right, do not love the world or the things in the world. And so John's going to define for us what he means by the world and the things of the world in verse 16. So we're just going to camp out here and we're just going to let the Spirit kind of deliver information to us as he sees fit. But the world here are, are the things that are opposed to God, right? It's the, it's the desires of the flesh. It's, it's anything that is opposed to God. And the things of the world are simply the individual things that make up the world. So that we can't say, well, I don't love like the whole world, but I love like these things over here. And John's like, yeah, that's, that's enough. Right? Don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. And, and the interesting thing about the way it's written in Greek is that it's in the present tense. Right? And so the present tense in Greek means that it's an ongoing action. It says, do not continue loving the world or continue loving the things of the world. This is the love of, of pleasure and the love of, of gratification that one hopes to receive. Because the word love, as we know, uses, we use that in a, in a variety of different, different ways. It was just recently my birthday, and I love cookie cake. There's not much left of it, and... Not that many people have eaten it besides me. 
right? But that's, that's not the same kind of love, right? And also just a few chapters ago, he uses the word love as, as to care for one another or to bear one another's burdens, right? And he's not saying that. He's, saying, he's not saying don't care for the world. He's not saying don't carry the burdens of the world. He is saying don't, uh, don't, don't love the pleasure and the gratification that the world has to offer. And then what he's going to do after that is he's going to give us reasons. We're going to have three reasons why we don't love the world or why we shouldn't love the world, right? Um, and I don't usually do this because I'm not usually a very good preacher to take notes on, but if you, love, if you like taking notes, today's your day. Uh, the first reason is going to be the, the love of God is incompatible with the love of the world. The second is going to be that the world is passing away. And the third reason why not to love the world is that in not loving the world and loving God, you will remain, right? So it's the opposite of passing away. You will remain forever. And so in the back half of chapter, I'm sorry, of verse 15, we have the first reason why we ought not love the world, right? And he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So this first reason is love of the world and love of the Father are incompatible with one another. They are mutually exclusive. If you grow in love with one, the love for the other dwindles, right? We get that? We cannot love both of them. And so, the, again, this is the present tense. If you continue to love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. Now, this love of the Father, that's an interesting thing because um, English is just very imprecise. So that's, that may be something that's difficult to understand. And, and what I always thought is that the love of the Father is not in you. That means God doesn't love you, right? The love of the Father does not belong to you. And that's not what it means, actually. What it means is that you do not have love for the Father. Inside of you does not exist love for the Father. That's what he's saying. And this reinforces the idea uh, that Jesus preached back in Matthew chapter 6, right, where he says, you cannot serve two masters, for you will grow to love one and hate the other. He's talking about money in that specific context, but that, that rule, right, not that rule, but like that truth, it exceeds uh, the time-bound audience, if you've been to our uh, Bible study Methodist class, it exceeds that time-bound audience, and it goes to everyone. You cannot serve two masters. In that specific time, it was, it was money in God, but it's anything in God. You cannot serve both. You will grow to hate one and love the other. So loving God pushes out love for the world, and loving the world pushes out love for God. And at the end of the day, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world because if you love the world, then you do not love the Father. Some of you may be in here thinking, big deal, it is what it is, you know. But he's going to go into some reasons, especially in verse 16, where he's going to explain what this love of the world and the things of the world are. Uh, and he's going to explain to you why that is a big deal, why especially as Christians we need to pay attention to this. And so starting in verse 16, he says, For all that is in the world, which he's going to define as desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is from the world. And so he's like, listen, listen, don't love the world. It's incompatible with the love of God. And listen, here's what love of the world is. And so he names three kind of categories, right? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so we'll just take them in order that the Spirit gives them to us. The desires of the flesh is physical 
pleasure. To be a lover of the world is to be a lover or to be consumed with physical pleasure, physical gratification, right? The New Living Translation translates it as craving for physical pleasure. There's a craving in you, right? Then he says, or the desires of the eyes. Now, the desires of the eyes are an aesthetic or an intellectual desire, right? The desire for how things look, right? This spills over into, of course, physical pleasure, right? Because what is aesthetically pleasing can also be physically pleasing if we're talking about men and women, but also a desire for things to look a certain way, right? And I know society puts a lot of pressure on us to look a certain way, right? We have magazines that portray women in a particular way, that portray men in a particular way. And what he's saying is those desires of the eyes... That is a loving of the world, right? And he says, the pride of life. Now, this one takes a little bit more because it's not so explanatory in its description. But this is covetous um, and, and a pride in possession. In 1 John three seventeen, he says, For anyone who has the goods of the world and does not help his brother, the love of the Father is not in him. In the goods of the world, right there, is actually the same word here, uh, translated life. And so pride of life is, is the same word translated somewhere else as pride of the goods of the world. So this is possession, possessions that you have, right? Uh, the net translation actually translates this little phrase as arrogance produced by material possessions. This is the person who believes that they've built up enough security, enough money, enough insurance to take care of themselves, and therefore they don't need God. That's the pride of life that we're talking about here. And what's interesting is the way that these categories kind of interact with each other, because the first two are desires for things that we don't have. And the third one is pride for the things we do have. And together, it's just a picture of the depravity of man. If we don't have what we want, and if we want it, we're proud of it. So no matter what, it's love for the world, right? It's a, complete, it's a complete description of sinful man. And what's really interesting is it mirrors the fall of man in the story of Adam and Eve. This is, this is, this is what we were from the beginning. We didn't grow into this. This is what we were, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God says, don't eat of this particular tree. We had one little, if you ever read Leviticus and you think, why we got so many rules? It's because we couldn't follow one. Keep that in mind. We only had one, we didn't follow it, right? And so they said, hey, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. And what happens? The serpent comes up, he starts talking, but what happens is the desires of the flesh kick in. It looks good to eat. The desires of the eyes kick in. And she tasted it, and she, she, she saw that it was good for food, right? And the snake starts talking to that pride of life. God has something you don't have, and he's withholding it from you. Don't you want it? Don't you want to be like God? And so she eats, right? This is, this is a description of man. And so what John is saying is like, hey, be on high alert, right? If you want to know whether or not you have eternal life, you have to ask yourself the question, do you love the world, because if you love the world, listen, the love for the Father is not in you. You can't love them both. And if you're confused about that or not, 
go through these categories with me. What kind of, what kind of desires of the flesh do you have? What about desires of the eyes? What, about, what, what are you holding on to because you're, pride, you're prideful of what your possessions are? Are you ever satisfied? Ever in anything? If someone gave you a million dollars, would you want a million in one? Back when I was a, a, a cashier at Kroger, I made $5.25 an hour. That was minimum wage. I'm only 31. I'm not that old. And I always thought, I don't know what I would do if I made $10 an hour. I'd sit there on my, on my calculator and I'd be like, oh man, if I worked the same hours, $10 an hour, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'd do with all that money. Well, eventually I got a job making $10 an hour. And I was like, man, what would it do if I made $15 an hour? $15 an hour, I don't even know what I would do. I guess I'd buy mansions and Bentleys and stuff. I don't know. You know, then I got a job making $15 an hour, and I was like, oh, man, what if I got a job that, like, paid me salary? Didn't depend on my hours. I could work till noon and leave, get paid for the whole day. Wouldn't that be crazy? Man, then I got a job where I was on a salary, and I was like, whoa, what if I made, like, $100,000 a year? I would find something to spend $100,000 a year on. That's what would happen. And I would want to make more, and I would want to make more, right? Because it never satisfies. Have you, have you experienced that? where you thought, man, if only I had a boyfriend, if only I had a husband, if only I had a wife, if only I had a car, if only I had a house, if only I had that degree. And then you get it, and you're like, if only I had another degree. Only, only a select few of us think that. <laughs> most, of us, like, most of us are like, I got the paper. Your boy, out. <laughs> right? But only if I had a nicer car, if only I had a bigger house. I'm not going to go into multiple wives. I'm not going to say that one. Right? It, man is never, ever satisfied. The world cannot provide to us anything that is actually satisfying. So John says, then don't love the world. Love God. And he's going to go into explaining kind of what this is, right? Because he says, all the stuff that is from the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the world is driven by two things. The two things drive everything that the world has ever done and everything, to be honest, that, that you have ever done. And that is passion for pleasure and pride in your possession. Those two things drive you every single day. Some of us have jobs that we don't even like. Why do you go? Because I need that money. Because I got I to gotta live in that house. I got to pay for that car. Some of us work like a billion hours a week to have a house we can't afford that we're never at. That's not me. That's some of us. I say that because I don't live in a big old house. <laughs> I live in a house without paint on the walls. Anyway, moving on. Right? These things are not from the Father. These ideas, this, this being driven by passion, being driven uh, by passion for pleasure or pride in my possession, these are things that are... That are inherently against the Father, right? And if, um, if this is what you are driven by, and if this is what is in your heart, then be honest with yourself about that. Is that what drives you every day when you wake up? Because let me let, me let you in on a secret that was told to me a very long time ago and was kind of life-changing. It doesn't have to change your life, but it changed my life. And that was your heart desires whatever it sees as most valuable. 
right? Your heart desires whatever it sees as most valuable. So the question is, what does your heart desire? And you be honest with you right now, right? Because the whole book of John calls us to be a little bit introspective, right? And so what does your heart desire? Whatever it is, whether you're convicted by that or not, it is what your heart sees as most valuable. If that's a spouse, if that's money, if that's a house, if that's status, if that's applause, whatever it is, that is what your heart sees as most valuable. And if you look at your life, that is what has continued to play out over and over again. That is the love of the world that comes in and takes away from your love of the Father. And so that's reason number one. They are, they, are, they are incompatible, right? Nothing about the love of the world is consistent with the love of the Father, so we should not love the world. Uh, reason number two is that the world is passing away along with its desires. And so what he is saying is like, listen, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you and has shown you that there's some love in your life that is not for the Father, but is actually for the world, and your heart is, is desiring that and is being driven by that, there's one thing I want to let you know about the things in the world or things that the world will give you. And what John says is that they will pass away, that they are temporary, that they are fleeting, that they are unsatisfactory. And this is a continuing process. If we think back to uh, what David said a few weeks ago in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 8, is that darkness is passing away due to the work that Christ has done, right? It specifically says darkness is passing away. And sometimes we get frustrated because we would prefer Scripture to say darkness has passed away. It's gone. There's no more darkness in the world. Your life is easy. Just walk in the light. But it's actually, it's a progression. Darkness is passing away. Everything that you build up here, because the world is passing away, will also pass away. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, right, we have King Solomon, who is the richest and wisest, it's hard to accomplish both of those, but the richest and wisest man to ever live, right? He had, uh, he had a thousand palaces, I think he had 10,000 wives, he had his gardens were national forests, right? So you got like a rose garden in your yard, that's cute, but that's not this dude, okay? Rivers were diverted to water the gardens of his palace. The streets in his kingdom were lined with silver. He wanted for nothing, and at the end of his life, he says, all of it is vanity. Vanity of vanities like chasing the wind. And I know some of us right now, you're thinking, why did that dude get to test everything out? Like, why wasn't that me? Why don't you give me all the money in the world? Let me come to my own conclusions, God. It's like, no, no, no. King Solomon already did it, right? And he tells us it is vanity, vanity of vanities. Everything that he built, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a touch depressing uh, because he's like, hey, let's say you built up this super successful company. When you die, your kids will probably ruin it. It's not going to stand the width of time. Let's say you built up billions of dollars, like Bill Gates or something like that. When you die, it's going to be squandered. You've done nothing. Your life is but a vapor. And what John is telling us is, loving the things of the world, it's even a shorter vapor than your life. And so he says, the world is passing away along with its desires, and, and John's warning is, and it will take you with it. 
But because of the work of Christ, the days of the world are numbered, right? He says the world will hate you, but that's cool because I have overcome the world. What he has done is he has set in motion an unstoppable plan to have a bride for himself, the church, made up of all people that he has chosen to be a part of it, and he will save that bride on the last day, and she will be pure, and she will be holy, and his will will be accomplished. And we can take, we can take uh, you know, assurance in that. And so everything that is against God will eventually pass away. It will eventually die, and actually much of Scripture speaks of it as already being dead. One of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of James. And it's really interesting how James uh, describes the rich, right? He, he attacks the rich quite a bit, but he, he, he describes the rich in there, and he describes them as having currently moth-eaten clothes, rusted gold, and all of their possessions are rubbish. And what's really interesting about that is, you know, standing there in that time where James wrote, their clothes were fabulous, Their gold was on point, and all their possessions looked beautiful. But he says, actually, no, they're moth-eaten, and their gold is rusted. I don't know how gold rusts, but it is rusted. And their possessions are rubbish. That's the way he saw that, that gold and those possessions, right? He described it as if it were now. Think about that. When you see the things that you want, is that the way you think about them? Do you think about them as rubbish? So he says, do not love the things of the world. It's incompatible with love of the Father. It's passing away. Be careful, Christian. It will take you with it. And finally, reason three, he says, but whoever does the will of the Father, uh, uh, will of God, abides forever. And so here's, here's the third thing, right? Whoever does the will of God, whoever loves the Father and not the world, you will remain. You won't pass away with the world. And so this is the opposite of loving the world, is loving God. And this, and this abides forever is to, is to remain. It is to uh, be contrasted with the passing away. And what's interesting is, here, I don't know where that English accent came from, uh, but whoever does the will of the Father remains forever. Now, that's interesting because he says, love the Father, love the Father, don't love the world, love the Father, don't love the world, do the will of the Father. And that's because doing the will of the Father and loving the Father are one in the same thing. This is like the second or third time that he has come back to the same point, and it's not the last time that he's going to come back to it, right? And so uh, if we back up a few verses in 1 John Uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Right? Right? And so, and so what he's saying is doing the will of the Father and loving the Father are inseparable. It is empty to say, I love God, but I do not love what God does. Or I desire God, but I do not desire what God desires. Or I love God, but I do not do what God does or wants me 
to do, right? And later on in the book of 1 John, in uh, 1 John 5, 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and that his commandments are not burdensome. If you don't believe me, because if you're like, well, that's what John thinks, right? Uh, we can read some words of Jesus here, recorded by John in the, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And those red letters, some people like to believe those mean more. If you love me, this is Jesus speaking, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's a very straightforward, logical phrase that says, if you, where the antecedent of that is, if you don't keep my commandments, then you don't love me. Now this may be a little bit, this may sound a little bit harsh, but what, what John is trying to get us to do is John is trying to get us to be introspective, right? Ask ourselves questions, be truthful with what's going on around us, and, and say, do you have eternal life? Because if you do, these are the things that will flow out. And if these things are not flowing out, then, then we need to have a discussion. John, John's intention is to not be like, none of y'all suckers saved. I'm out. He is saying, hey, listen, if you're answering some of these questions in a, in a specific way, then I encourage you, you need to know Jesus. You need to not love the world, but love God. And how, you know, how, do, we, how do we go about doing that? And some of you are saying, Joey, I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm, I'm tracking with you, right? But I don't know what the will of God is. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Scripture has boiled it down to us very, very simply. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus is being asked about commandments. And what's the greatest commandment? And, 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 and what should we do? And he boils down all of Scripture into just a few statements. Where he says, Jesus replied again. These are going to be red letters. You ready? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Right? That's the will of God. For you to love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your might, and all your heart. And I know I got them in the wrong order. It's okay. And he said, and, and, and there's another commandment. He says that in verse 39. He's like, there's another commandment second to that one, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. All of Scripture boiled down to two statements. Right before Jesus departs from earth, he gives us a third one in the, uh, in the Great Commission, and that's make disciples. So the will of God for your life is that you love God, that you love people, and that you make disciples. That is the will of God. I've cleared it all up for you. And you say, well, that's great because that's like real general, but what is the will of God for my life specifically? It is to figure out how you are specially gifted and then use those gifts to love God, love people, and make disciples. We overcomplicate this where we say, I just don't know if it's the will of God for me to do X or for me to do Y. Whether you do X or Y, whether you go to work here or whether you go to work there, whether you go on the mission trip or whether you don't go on the mission trip, it's not a question of God's will. It's a question of wherever you go, are you going to love God, love people, and make disciples? 
If you're stuck between two jobs and you are just completely at wit's end because you don't know which one to choose, let me free it up for you. It doesn't matter. You may be happier at one over the other. You may be better at one than the other. You may have more success at one than the other, but at the end of the day, God's will has not changed, nor have you been obedient slash disobedient, depending on which one you choose, as long as wherever God has you, you love God, love people, make disciples. And the people that live by that, which is supposed to be us, right? It's supposed to be Christians. Those, those are Christians in the room you will find that no matter where they are, they have joy. There's people in this room that have really, really, really difficult jobs that drain them every day. And you may sit back and say, how do you go home, go to sleep, wake up, and go back? They found love in the Father, not the world. They find refuge in the Father and not in their success or the joys of their job and wherever they are they're loving God they're loving people and they're making disciples one of my favorite pastors and theologians as we kind of wrap this thing up said this freeing ourselves from the love of the world is not icing on the cake of saving faith it is a matter of eternal life and eternal death this love is the first great commandment that Jesus gave us. And we just referred to Matthew chapter 22, right? And so that's what, that's what he's talking about here, right? And so what, what John is talking about is, is not an option. Not like, hey, uh, this is something you need to work on, but that, this is something that characterizes a Christian. So much so that he can say, if you are in love with the world, right? and you are not doing the Father's will, then you do not love the Father. I don't want to take away the sting of that statement because it's a very black and white statement. And we know that the reason that John wrote these verses is because he wants us to know whether or not we have eternal life. He wants us to know and have assurance that we know Christ or that we don't know Christ because as Jesus points out to us, there will be a lot of people on judgment that say, hey, Jesus, my man, how you doing? And he's like, I don't know who you are. And he wants us to have assurance to know whether or not that we have this relationship with Christ, right? And so he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, which points you kind of inward. Introspectively, ask yourself these questions. He did not say, I write these things to give you a measuring stick to go make sure other people are doing what they're supposed to do. He says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so let's dig in that a little bit. Let me ask you some things. Do you find yourself...
statement for me, right? This is a very true statement, and it may take you a while to think of it. I only have value if I am blank or if I have blank. What's that blank for you? I only have value if I am blank or if I have blank. Is that a flaw? Is that if I am below a certain weight or if I am on some kind of leadership? If I have money, if I drive a nice car, what, what are in those blanks? Again, I can't go through the, the literally millions of possibilities, but what is that for you? And here's a much easier question. Is it God? Because if it's not, whatever is in that blank is a love for the world, not a love for God. There's two reasons you may not feel love for God. And we'll go into this. The first one is being faithful to Scripture in our faith. You don't feel the love for God because you're not saved. You never had a relationship with Him. And the response to that is to call out to God, to call out on the Spirit and, and plead for that regeneration, right? That's, that's the appropriate response to realizing, hey, I may not have a relationship with the Lord. And that's why everything about the Christian life is completely absent of joy and feels like a burden. Just know, even if you feel like that, in that, the Lord will meet you, the Lord will guide you, His Spirit will empower you. Jesus can ignite a, a fire for His for His Word, that Christ died for your sins on the cross, and that the offer of, of regeneration and the love of the Lord is here today. love for God is that your love has simply grown cold. What was once vibrant is now dying out. Your response to that is exactly the same as someone who 